Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Agenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 26th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present part 26 of our commentary on the wisdom of Solomon. It is subtitled, The Dark of Night. And we are seeing the dark of night come in relation to this series of podcasts. This evening we will complete chapter 17. And then there are only two chapters left before we begin our commentary on the first epistle of John, which I'm actually looking forward to as well. But the Wisdom series has been, well, well it's been enriching for me. I, I hope somebody else got something out of it. Okay, this is the Dark of Night. In our last presentation in this commentary on Wisdom, presenting chapter 16, we discussed Solomon's narrative as a tale of two torments, wherein he made continual analogies which compare the punishment of the Egyptians for their destruction to the frequent punishments of the children of Israel for their correction. Solomon, having done this, there must be something of substance to these comparisons which the ancient Israelites of his own time, who were much closer to the actual history of the post-Exodus period, could have understood and from which they could have learned. In the centuries before and during, the approximately 200 years that the children of Israel were in Egypt. It was a great empire which exerted its control or influence far beyond its own borders and also held subject many city-states of the Levant as vassals. But from the time of Pharaoh Thutmose III, which is when the exodus had occurred, to the time of Akhenaten, not even a hundred years later, Egypt had rather quickly decreased in power to the point where, as the Amarna letters fully reflect, it would not even care to defend its vassal states in Palestine against the invading Hebrews. For several centuries thereafter, throughout the Judges' period, and until the time of the divided kingdom and the chastisement of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, king of Judah, Egypt had not been a threat to Israel and apparently showed little interest in regaining its dominion over Palestine. During a short-lived revival, Ramses II exerted Egyptian military strength at the Battle of Kadesh against the Hittites where he failed in his attempt to gain the northern Syrian city. However, whatever he may or may not have done in Palestine was unnoticed in Scripture and seems to have been of no consequence, as his own inscriptions were boastful and his achievements were overstated. Then by the time of the prophet Isaiah, Egypt was invaded and was ruled over for a time, probably about 75 years, by Nubians, and its blood was spoiled forever. 
During another short-lived revival, over a century after the deportations of Israel, and apparently soon after the fall of the Assyrian Empire, Egypt once again sent its armies north in an attempt to gain control of Carchemish, the ancient Hittite capital, for itself, which is when Josiah, king of Judah, was slain in battle. Shortly thereafter, Egypt would fall subject to the Babylonians and then to the Persians and continued its decline until it became a colony for both the Macedonians and the Romans. So while Egypt has not really been Egypt in well over 2,500 years, its decline and inevitable destruction truly did begin with the Exodus. In our last presentation, we also made an analogy for ourselves, which was not written, but which may be worth which may be worth repeating. Where Solomon had discussed certain events of the Exodus, we compared the serpents which had beset the children of Israel in the desert to the two-legged metaphorical serpents, which had become prevalent and even politically dominant throughout the nations of Christendom today. We should not dismiss this analogy lightly. When the Israelites in the desert looked upon the brazen serpent, they were delivered from the biting serpents. So Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 3, and Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Christ himself had taught us in his gospel that those who had rejected him were indeed serpents. And that is how true Christians, who are white Christians, should view all other groups, and especially the Jews. Now that the nations of Christendom are besieged with these serpents, there is no deliverer outside of Christ who was lifted up exclusively on their behalf. There is no other cure for the ultimate removal of the serpents, and there is no other path to temporal salvation. Now as we enter into Wisdom chapter 17, Solomon continues his analogies comparing the torments of Egypt to those of the children of Israel. And he now treats the torment of Egypt at length throughout this chapter, where, although he does not mention it explicitly, he is describing the Egyptian experience on the night of the first Passover in Egypt, whereupon all the firstborn of the Egyptians had been slain. So that brings us to Wisdom chapter 17, verse 1. Remember that Solomon is offering a prayer to Yahweh for wisdom, as it was explained much earlier in this book. I believe it was in chapter 9 where the prayer began. And it continues through the end of the book. So here, addressing God in his prayer, for great are thy judgments, and cannot be expressed. Therefore, unnurtured souls have erred. 
erred, to have committed errors. Man cannot achieve, man cannot achieve, I'm sorry, man cannot achieve true justice. Now I'm really doing it. Man cannot achieve true justice or righteousness in judgment and governance without Yahweh God and his laws. So being without those things, here the Egyptians are called unnurtured souls. The word unnurtured was translated from the Greek adjective apahidutus, which is actually uneducated or uninstructed as a pahis, that's the core of that word, apahidutus, as a pahis or child would be instructed. So apahidutus actually means without elementary education, the education that even a child should have. And of course, Solomon's referring to the laws of God. We would translate this passage to read, For greater are your judgments and hard to explain, for which reason uninstructed souls have wandered. So we read in Proverbs chapter 9, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Then in Proverbs chapter 16, we see an example of true humility. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He that handles the matter wisely shall find good, and whoso trusts in Yahweh, happy is he. The wise in heart shall be called prudent, and the sweetness of the lips increaseth learning. Understanding is a wellspring of life unto him that has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds learning to his lips. And even though it is not quite explicit, it demonstrates that Solomon himself understood instruction and therefore understood that the uninstructed either had the laws of God or didn't. In our last presentation, we had discussed some aspects of the idolatry of Egypt. But in Wisdom chapter 14, we had learned that Yahweh would make a way in the sea and a safe path in the waves, even for an idolater upon whom he had mercy, the idolater simply not knowing any better. However, now Solomon explains how the Egyptians had deserved their condemnation, had deserved to not receive mercy. For when righteous men thought to impress the holy nation, they being shut up in their houses, the prisoners of darkness, and fettered with the bonds of a long night, lay there exiled from the eternal providence. The word for unrighteous is anomous. Lawless men, men without the law and illustrates the reason for Solomon's earlier reference to them as being uninstructed.
The word for thought here is a form of the verb, hupolambano, which is literally to take up a thing from underneath, as it had been used by the Greek poets, and therefore also to bear up or support something, not necessarily something material. Here it describes the support of the people for the intentions of the Pharaoh to enslave the Hebrews. The word translated as houses is a form of orophis, which collectively are the, are the reeds used for thatching houses. So to me, that's an odd use of that word. Finally, the word for providence is pronoia, which is foresight or foreknowledge and ostensibly refers to the providence of God. As Paul of Tarsus had stated, which is also evident in Scripture in other ways, it was 430 years from the call of Abraham to the giving of the law at Sinai. As we had first discussed at length here, in part four of our August 2015 commentary on the Epistle to the Galatians, which was titled Heirs of the Covenant, after the events of the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the land of Canaan, and the time when Jacob went down to Egypt and died 17 years later, that leaves about 200 years from the death of Jacob to the giving of the law at Sinai. And I cite my own podcast here, as I always do, hoping that if people want the more precise details, they could go and examine that text or that podcast because that's where they are. I'm not giving all of the proofs here. This is only a summary overview. Sometime during that last 200 years, which is the 200 years that the children of Israel were actually in Egypt after Jacob died, and I believe by my calculations it was really like 199 or 198 years, so sometime during that last 200 years, once Joseph and his generation had also died, we read, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it comes to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us. And so get them up out of the land. But from the scriptures, we cannot tell precisely how far into the 200-year period this had happened. Actually, we only know that the Israelites had already been enslaved sometime before the birth of Moses. And after his birth, their slavery endured for another 80 years, when he returned to Egypt from exile and was called to lead the Israelites out of their slavery. In any event, the period of slavery suffered by the Israelites was probably somewhere between 100, I'm sorry, between 80 and 160 years. Assuming that from the time when Jacob died, it was at least 40 more years before Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation, 
which we also read in Exodus chapter 1. Moses must have been born about 120 years after the death of Jacob. The genealogies of Moses consistently account him as being in only the third generation from Levi. That space of time is not implausible for the era, as we see that Isaac was 60 years old when his first children were born. But our purpose is to demonstrate that where Solomon said, when unrighteous men thought to oppress the holy nation, describing the time of the judgment of Yahweh upon Egypt for that very deed, we see that it we see that Yahweh had taken as many as 160 years to execute that judgment from the time when it was first warranted. So, as subsequent passages shall reveal, the Egyptians were, on the night of their judgment, shut up in their houses, prisoners of darkness, fettered with the bonds of a long night, through which they could only hope to survive. Thus he continues, For while they supposed to lie hid in their secret sins, they were scattered under a dark veil of forgetfulness, being horribly astonished and troubled with strange apparitions. That word strange is in parentheses in the King James Apocrypha found in the Bible Works software. I didn't check the King James Apocrypha which I have sitting on my bookshelf because I really didn't think to, but the word strange was certainly added to the text. In Wisdom chapter 10, referring to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, Solomon had wrote, or I should say probably had written, for regarding not wisdom, they got not only this hurt, that they knew not the things that, which were good, but also left them behind, left behind them to the world, a memorial of their foolishness, so that in the things wherein they offended, they could not so much as be hid. And I believe that when we when I covered Wisdom chapter ten, I had retranslated that verse as well because the language is a little archaic. But the point is that the ungodly sinners, believing that their sins are hidden that their wicked deeds may be covered. The word of Yahweh says, in contrast to the children of Israel in Isaiah chapter 40, For say not thou, O Jacob, and why hast thou spoken, Israel, saying, My way is hid from God, and my God has taken away my judgment and has departed. In other words, you won't be punished if that's the way you think. And we see that with the Sodomites in Wisdom chapter 10, and with the Egyptians here in Wisdom chapter 17, here in verse 3. Having several differences with the King James Version, including the word strange, which is not in the Greek, we would translate verse 3 to read, For supposing their hidden sins to be unnoticed, with a dim covering of oblivion, being terribly astonished, they were scattered and troubled by hallucinations, the Greek word indalma, 
And this is going to become important. The reasons for this are going to become apparent towards the end of this chapter. The Greek word indalma, which is hallucinations here. But in the King James Version, it is strange apparitions. The word is defined by Liddell and Scott as a form or appearance, citing this passage, as well as secular sources, and then also as a mental image, and in the plural, as it also is here, as hallucinations, citing secular sources, Greek writers. An apparition is an external sight, but a is a sight of something outside of you, I should say. But a hallucination is something in one's own mind, which is how we would prefer to interpret the word in this context. And as I said, the reasons for that will become apparent later on in this presentation. From the time of the Exodus, if the judges period lasted about 450 years, until the time of Samuel, as it is stated in Acts chapter 13, then with the events in the lives of Saul and David, we have well over 500 years to the ascension of Solomon, when he presumably made this prayer. In my opinion, the 450 years mentioned in Acts 13 is inclusive of the time of Moses and the early life of Samuel, until Saul became king. Yet many, many of these details described by Solomon here are not found in the writings of Moses and what we may read in the account of Scripture concerning that first Passover. The record of the event in relation to the Egyptians is found in Exodus chapter 12. First, there is warning from Yahweh where he had said, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this, this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are, the blood of the Passover. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's why it's called Passover. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Then we read, as a matter of record, later on in that same chapter, <clears throat> And it came to pass that at midnight Yahweh smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, under the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And as a digression, I would like to say that believing the Pharaoh of the Exodus is certainly Tuthmos III, and I've given good reasons for that in my presentation, my presentations on the book of Acts and the epistle to the Galatians. Tutmos III's oldest son died, and the reasons for his death were not explained in any Egyptian inscriptions. So Tutmos III's second son, or next-in-line son, Tutmos IV, was his successor, 
but that was not the original succession. In the 78th Psalm, which is attributed to Asaph, now Asaph was a prophet of the Babylonian captivity in the early years, we read something which may be interpreted as a partial corroboration of this more detailed description here in Wisdom more detailed than what we have in the Exodus, right? And there will be other corroborations offered here. There'll be one offered a little later in this presentation from the letters of Paul of Tarsus. But we read in the 78th Psalm, in relation to the Exodus and the plagues of Egypt, he cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath and indignation, and trouble by sending evil angels, now that word is simply messengers, and messengers can take any form, by sending evil messengers among them. He made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death, but gave their life over to the pestilence and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of Ham. Then we read in the 135th Psalm, which is not attributed. I mean, we might assume that David wrote it, but it's not attributed. Where it speaks of Yahweh, who smote the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, who sent tokens and wonders into the midst of thee, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and upon all his servants. So while these may also only be interpretations of the account as it is in Exodus chapter 12, it Nevertheless, seems plausible that in ancient times there may have been a, an even greater account of the wonders of Egypt extant than what we have preserved in the book of Exodus. Now Solomon continues to describe the fear which must have come upon the Egyptians in their houses on that faithful night. For neither might the corner that held them keep them from fear, but noises, and again we have an interpolation, but noises as of waters, but noises falling down sounded about them, and sad visions appeared unto them with heavy countenances. The word corner, we'll see this word a few times this evening. The word corner, mucus. M-U-C-H-O-S, if we had to transliterate it into English. I really do believe it's the source of the word mucus in terms like mucus membrane and things like that. But the word for corner, mucus, typically referred to the innermost part of a house. In reference to wealthier estates, that would have been the women's quarters, which were customarily the innermost rooms or in par apartments of a large house, or a manor, if you will. A manor, or a mansion. For the sake of clarity, we would translate this verse to read, and we're going to retranslate a lot of verses this evening. For neither did the innermost room containing them protect them from fear, but noises agitating them sounded around them, and obscure apparitions with gloomy countenances became visible. The word for apparitions here is a plural form of phasma related to our English word phantom. Perhaps these are the evil angels and 
token and tokens and wonders sent among the Egyptians as the Psalms had described. But Solomon continues, no power of the fire might give them light. Neither could the bright flames of the stars endure to lighten that horrible night. While the sense of this translation is acceptable, we will nevertheless offer our own. And indeed, not any power of fire had prevailed to give light. Neither did the quite bright flames of stars abide to shine upon that hateful night. Hateful or odious, perhaps. Here it seems that Solomon had imagined the events of this night to have transpired in much the same way as another event some days following, where on the day that the armies of Pharaoh had pursued the Israelites into the divide of the Red Sea, we read, and the angel of God, this is from Exodus chapter 12, I think, or 13, and the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them, and the pillar of the cloud went from before their face. And stood behind them, and it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud of darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these, meaning to the Israelites, so that the one came not near the other all the night. This interpretation of these statements in wisdom here in chapter 17 is supported by the opening verse of chapter 18 where in contrast to the darkness which enveloped the Egyptians on the night of the death of the firstborn, Solomon writes in respect to the children of Israel and says, Nevertheless, thy saints had a very great light. At the end of this chapter, it will be stated that it was the Egyptians alone that were in darkness on this day, and that everyone else had perfect light that they could just go about their business. So we will see that, I believe, in verse 28, perhaps. No, verse 20. There's only 21 verses, I think, in this chapter. Now returning to his description of the Egyptians in Wisdom chapter 17, verse 6. Only there appeared unto them a fire kindled of itself, very dreadful, for being much terrified... They thought the things which they saw to be worse than the sight they saw not. In other words, what they could not see was actually worse than the things which they saw. However, they did not consider what they could not see, which was the presence of Yahweh. This also seems to explain the reference in verse 4 to obscure apparitions with gloomy countenances. Now Solomon turns to speak comparatively of the tricks of the Egyptian wizards, which were described in the Exodus, accounts of the Exodus and the days of the plagues of Egypt. As for the illusions of magic art, they were put down, and their vaunting in wisdom was reproved with disgrace. The Greek word, empahigma, is defined by Liddell and Scott, Liddell and Scott as a jest, a mocking, or a delusion. And it appears also in the Septuagint, in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 4, 
where the King James Version reads, I will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them. And to some degree, that also corroborates the example, but not the event, which Solomon describes here, that Yahweh applied this same thing to the Egyptians as we progress further on in the chapter, we will understand that, that they are being deluded by their own perceptions and that their own fears are being brought upon them. The masculine form of the word appears in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36, as mocking in that context. Perhaps by pursuing such delusions, Men are mocking both God and making a mockery of themselves. The verb katakaimahi here, where it says they were put down, is literally to lie down. But here it is passive, where it may be defined as to lie idle or to be neglected. So we would translate verse 7 to read. But delusions of magic craft were neglected, and of the pretense for wisdom, a contemptible rebuke. If we were not attempting an interlinear translation, we would write that final clause to read, and a contemptuous rebuke of the pretense for wisdom. The Greek adjective, ephubristos, is defined by Liddell and Scott as contemptible, where it is used in a passive sense, as it is here. Yet, in our opinion, the adjective contemptuous is also a correct translation and better fits the context of the meaning here. The definition of contemptible is commonly deserving contempt, while contemptuous is showing contempt. The rebuke was showing contempt. I'm sorry. I should have written, and of the pretense for wisdom, a contemptuous rebuke. I had to write in my notes and not write in my translation. In other words, the Egyptians, thinking themselves to be wise in their knowledge and their magic arts, the punishment which they received in turn and the neglect of those arts, or the fact that they couldn't use them, or the fact that they lay idle, or they lay neglected, they weren't used, they were of no use, was a contemptuous reproach or rebuke, perhaps a contemptuous refutation, as the word Elenkos, and we've discussed this word quite often in the opening chapters of wisdom, it has a wide range of meaning. Elenkos is a reproach, a disgrace, a dishonor, a disproof, a refutation, or even a conviction as for a crime. This word, pretense, and of the pretense for wisdom, rather than merely pretense, the Greek word alazonia, or alazonaya, I should say, is more fully a false pretension, imposture, or even quackery, as Liddell and Scott defined the term. So the punishment which the Egyptians had received 
was a conviction whereby Yahweh God had showed his contempt for their false pretense of wisdom, or even for the quackery of their thinking, as the noun phronesis can refer to a way of thinking as well as an intention, purpose, wisdom, or sagacity, among other things. So some of these terms have a wide range of meaning. If I really wanted to translate this verse 7 disparagingly, I could very well put, but delusions of magic craft were neglected, and of the false pretense or the quackery of their thinking, a contemptuous rebuke. So these Egyptian magicians were really quacks, as we would say of many of these Jewish physicists and and scientists, so-called scientists of today. Now Solomon continues to speak of the Egyptian magicians, or in this context, perhaps sorcerers would be a more appropriate term. For they, that promised to drive away terrors and troubles from a sick soul, were sick themselves of fear, worthy to be laughed at. And of course, that would uphold that alternate interpretation of the quackery of their thinking that we had mentioned in relation to verse 7. Excuse me. While the sense of this translation is acceptable, in the translation, some conjecture is introduced into the text, which we would rather translate to read. For they promising to drive away terrors and troubles from a sick soul, themselves were made sick from a ridiculous religion. And here I've actually taken a liberty by translating Eulabiah as religion. Liddell has got to find the word to mean primarily discretion or caution. And then, among other things, which are more fitting here, reverence, piety, or godly fear, or religious scruple. So the word certainly has a greater meaning than fear, as it is in the King James Version. And religion is not really a stretch of the imagination. Another and more substantial proof of our assertion that Solomon had access to a more detailed account of the plagues of Egypt than what is found in the book of Exodus, is found in Paul's second epistle to Timothy. So we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he speaks of men who are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then he makes a mention of two of the magicians of Egypt by name. Now, as Janes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also these whom Paul is speaking of in his own time, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, as we had explained at length in our December 2017 commentary on that 
chapter of Paul's second epistle to Timothy, titled, No Mercy for Narcissists. Either one or both of these men were mentioned in Christian apocryphal books and in other pseudepigraphal works, in unrelated documents found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, namely the Damascus document, and even in Pliny's Natural History, among other early writings. Whether Solomon is speaking explicitly of Janus and Jambres, or whether he was even familiar with the magicians of Egypt by those names, is immaterial. But Paul's words do show the probability that Solomon did indeed have access to more detailed accounts of the events of the plagues in Egypt from which to draw the analogies and lessons which he had made here. Now, while he also describes the magicians of Egypt as healers, or perhaps as sorcerers, although he does not use that term, he explains that those who had once conjured beasts of their own had died, at least in part, for fear of beasts, in verse 9. For though no terrible thing did fear them, yet being scared with beasts that passed by, and hissing of serpents, they died for fear, denying that they saw the air, which could of no side be avoided. And that's a strange translation. As I as a digression, at this point forward, the verse numbers in the King James Apocrypha are one-off from the Greek editions. And while Brenton's edition follows the traditional numbering found in the Septuagint, in the Greek of the Septuagint, his English text is an exact copy of that which is found in the King James Apocrypha. The problem persists throughout the rest of the chapter. For our purposes here, as we have not been offering a review of the critical editions of the text of the Greek in this commentary, while there are differences in the verse numbering in this portion of the chapter, we will follow the arrangement found in the King James Apocrypha. However, for the purpose of greater clarity, we shall offer our own translation of verses 9 and 10. For even if nothing terrible frightened them, in the passing of beasts and hissing of serpents, terrified they had perished, being scared to death, even refusing to look at the air that from no place could be avoided. Here we have taken another liberty as exobeo, a verb which is literally to scare away, or in the passive, as it is here, to be scared away. So in the context of having perished from the fear, we have translated it as scared to death, which I believe was actually more fitting. As we have often seen throughout the wisdom of Solomon, Yahweh frequently punishes men with their own delusions. We read in Exodus chapter 7 that Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh called together the wise men of Egypt and the sorcerers 
And the charmers also of the Egyptians did likewise with their sorceries. And they cast down each his rod, and they became serpents. But the rod of Aaron swallowed up their rods. So here Solomon has described men who once conjured such beasts as having died in the dark of night from fear of beasts quite like the ones that they had once conjured, and of which they were evidently not in fear of when they had done so. Now Solomon turns to address the wickedness of the magicians. For wickedness, condemned by her own witness, is very timorous. And being pressed with conscience, always forecasts grievous things. And in fairness, this might describe all of the Egyptians because they all had faith in their magicians. The verb pros alethen here is a form of proslambano, which is to take or receive besides, to get over and above, not merely just to get or to receive, which is lambano, or with an accusative case noun, to take to oneself in reference to hardships or grievous things, as the King James has it here. So once again, we will offer our own translation for the purpose of clarity so that the meaning is better understood. For cowardly is wickedness condemned by her own witness and always takes hardships to itself. Being or to herself might be more appropriate, that word wickedness being a feminine noun. Being afflicted in conscience. So wickedness is a cause of cowardice in a time of judgment. To which Solomon attributes the death of the Egyptian magicians here. And when one is burdened by a guilty conscience, he asserts that it causes even greater hardships. Now he describes the resulting fear. For fear is nothing else but a betraying of the succors, succors which reason offers or offereth. The Greek word prodosia is a giving up, a betrayal, or treason, according to Liddell and Scott. But in this context, perhaps forsaking rather than betraying would be appropriate in the sense of giving up. As for the word reason, where the Greek word logismos appears on six other occasions in wisdom, it is always used of the errant or foolish reasoning of men as opposed to the wisdom which is of God. However, while here Solomon still used it of the reasoning of men, it is used of sound reasoning in opposition to the ridiculous religion, as we translated the phrase, which had made them sick and which had ultimately destroyed them, as he described in verses 8 through 10. So now he continues in that same manner. And the expectation from within, verse 13, counts being less, the expectation from within being less, 
counteth the ignorance more than the cause which bringeth the torment. Perhaps by not understanding that there is a God who would judge them for iniquity, although they themselves are right only in their own eyes, they would rather remain that way, which is ignorance from Solomon's perspective. The aforementioned wickedness is what provides a cause for punishment. So, for the purpose of clarity, we would translate the verse to read, Any expectation from within being weaker considers ignorance better than that which provides the cause of torment. It would be better to remain ignorant than to face reality and imagine that the God of the Hebrews was God, even in spite of all the bad things that came upon them when they denied it. Now Solomon turns back to their punishment, which had come in the dark of night. But they sleeping, the same sleep that night, which was indeed intolerable, and which came upon them out of the bottoms of inevitable hell. Wow. The Greek word adunados is an adjective which is used twice in this clause to modify the nouns for night and Hades, where the King James translators rendered it alternately as intolerable and inevitable. However, according to Liddell and Scott, Adunados means, first, of persons unable to do a thing, as an absolute, without strength or powerless, and then of things that cannot be done or impossible. However, speaking of night and Hades here, Solomon is speaking of what power those things had and not what men could do to them. So, the absolute sense of the word is the sense which is applicable here. Therefore, we will translate the verse for ourselves. But they, on a night that was actually powerless, and we realize the truth of that, and the correctness of that interpretation, because Solomon is saying that their own apparitions and their own fears killed them, not the darkness itself, but the fears that they had from the darkness, the fears that they had in the darkness because of their guilty consciences. But they, on a night it was actually powerless, and coming upon them from the innermost recesses of powerless Hades, because Hades can do nothing to a man by itself, Sleeping in the same sleep, and that's it, the sentence continues into verse 15. Here there is another play on words which must be noted. In verse 4, the context of men hidden away in a house. The word mucus in the singular is the innermost room. However, here, in reference to Hades, it is the innermost recesses as it appears in the plural. So now, with verse 15, to finish the statement, sleeping in the same sleep, we're partially vexed with monstrous apparitions, 
the they, they, you would expect it to say they were. The they is at the beginning of verse 14, but they on a night that was actually powerless. We're partly vexed with monstrous appar apparitions and partly fainted, their heart failing them for a sudden fear and not looked for came upon them. And while the King James translation is often quite good, on many occasions it departs widely from the original intent of the writer. So once again, we will offer our own translation of verse 15. On one hand, we're persecuted with the wonders of apparitions. And on the other, they were weakened for the forsaking of their lives. Or perhaps they were weakened to the forsaking of their lives, because that's what Solomon is saying happened. For a sudden and unexpected fear had poured over them. So here we should see the reason for why Solomon had referred to both the night and to Hades as powerless, where he also said actually or truly powerless in verse 14. That word actually or truly, the King James merely translated as indeed, but it has a stronger meaning than that. As Yahweh punishes men with their own delusions, here Solomon explains that these men were punished not by tangible things, but by apparitions which had caused them fear unto death. So now he speaks in reference to their deaths and evidently also to their descent into Hades. And he says, So then, whosoever there fell down was straightly kept, shut up in a prison without iron bars. In his first epistle, in chapters 3 and 4, the apostle Peter had described Hades as a prison, where the spirits of those who died in the flood of Noah had been kept. Ostensibly, nearly all of the dead had been shut up in Sheol, or Hades, a metaphorical prison where the departed spirits of the dead had residence until they were released at the coming of the Christ, a metaphorical or spiritual prison. I don't believe that Hades is not real or was not real, but perhaps it symbolizes merely the state of a deceased spirit which was alienated from God. So Peter himself described these departed spirits of the dead having been in prison until they were released at the coming of Christ. And that is also the prison to which Solomon refers here. But evidently, for the race of the children of Adam, even the dark of the darkest night does have a dawn. Well, we cannot be entirely serpent, entirely certain, I'm sorry. Here there seems to be another wordplay with the use of the Greek word erkte or eikte. That's hard to pronounce. E-I is a diphthong and it's pronounced like I. This begins with an 
rough breathing sound, hyakte. A hyakte is an enclosure or prison for which Liddell and Scott cited Herodotus, 5th century BC, but which, like mucus, was also used to describe the inner part of the house, the woman's apartments, for which they cited Xenophon, writing in the 4th century BC, not very long after Herodotus. Now, while Solomon did not mention, did not mention the deaths of the firstborn of Egypt explicitly, that is evidently the event to which he refers. So, as we read in Exodus chapter 12, that at midnight Yahweh smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, under the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Solomon explains in another way that this punishment was without regard for persons, which is the status or stature of persons, where he says in verse 17, for whether he were husbandman or shepherd or a laborer in the field, he was overtaken and endured that necessity, which could not be avoided, for they were all bound with one chain of darkness. The Greek word, Georgus, a worker of the soil, is more literally a farmer, but also a husbandman on looser terms. The word translated as field here, eremia, is literally wilderness. The translation in the King James Version misplaced or ignored a verb belonging to the description of that laborer. So once again, for the purpose of clarity, we shall offer our own version of verse 17. For whether any man was a husbandman, or a shepherd, or a laborer toiling in the desert, having been overtaken, he awaited that inescapable necessity. For with one chain of darkness, they had all been bound. Here it seems that Solomon used the term, chain of darkness, which appears nowhere else in the Old Testament scriptures, as a grammatical device to describe the misery of Hades. But this does not mean that the term is used in the same way, or that it defines the manner in which it was used by the apostles of Christ, who, when they used the term, were speaking of men who were living still on earth. However, this does suggest that where the apostles Peter and Jude had used the same term in their epistles, that perhaps they may have also had some lost writing from which they had drawn an analogy, as it was used by each of them to describe the punishment of the angels that sinned. Now Solomon describes some of the apparitions from which these Egyptians had died of fear. Perhaps he is making mere mere playful, merely playful poetic allegories, or perhaps he is describing actual phenomena in wistfully poetic terms. And the King James translation of these next two verses was Christ quite sufficient, so I did not offer my own.
Whether it were a whistling wind, the word for spirit, but in this context, surely a wind, or a melodious noise of birds among the spreading branches, or a pleasing fall of water running violently, or a terrible sound of stones cast down, or a running that could not be seen of skipping beasts, in other words, it could only be heard, or a roaring voice of most savage wild beasts, or a rebounding echo from the hollow mountains, these things made them to swoon for fear. So men whose consciences were already laden with the guilt of their wickedness, as Solomon had described earlier, were for that reason in all the more fear from these unseen things which they imagined were all around them in the dark of night. For that reason, as Solomon also attests here, did their fear overcome them and they died. But of that which they died, none of it was real. It was all just apparitions or hallucinations. And men who had thought to be wise <laughs> became fools. Perhaps this was also the inspiration for the words of Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 1, who said of the Romans that they had turned to what, who said of the Romans who had, I should say, turned to idolatry, that professing to be wise, they became fools. Now Solomon once again informs us in another way that none of the terror which befell the Egyptians was real, but that it was only apparitions that had been made from their own delusions which had come upon them and overtaken their minds. Where in verse 20, he says, For the whole world shined with clear or perhaps brilliant light, and none were hindered in their labor. This refers to the state of the children of Israel during the very time of this same event. As Solomon described them in the next chapter of Wisdom, even where even though it was still night, they had a sufficient light, for which reason, when we present that chapter, we hope to discuss the light of day. <clears throat> In contrast to this presentation on the dark of night. So now, concluding his description of the dark of night, as that faithful night that had befallen the Egyptians. In the last verse of this chapter, he once again reiterates the fact that such darkness fell only upon them. In verse 21, over them only was spread a heavy night, an image of that darkness which should afterward receive them. In other words, the night being an image of Hades. But yet were they unto themselves more grievous than the darkness. And there is yet another wordplay here, where the word baris is literally translated as heavy earlier in the verse of a heavy night, and later we see the comparative form, baruderus, 
which is more heavy, but which is here translated as more grievous. While the night was heavy or burdensome to the Egyptians, as Barris may also be translated as burdensome, they were even more burdensome to themselves on account of the fear which overcame them as their consciences were laden with guilt. When our own fears overcome us, we should learn from this lesson and consider our own guilt. What do we have to fear? Are we impending judgment for something? If we're not impending judgment for something, if we're not hiding some sin, then we should have nothing to fear. It's that simple. And that gives us a chance, while we still have an opportunity in this life, to repent and come to the light. This is indeed the dark of night. And as we said, when we continue with this commentary on wisdom, we shall see the light of day. For this Paul had written in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we must all appear, appear, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he has done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For this he also wrote in Hebrews chapter 9. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, if the apostles and their gospel are in our consciences, then we will rid ourselves of guilt by repenting of our sins, ceasing from them, and being obedient to the commandments of Christ. Finally, for this, the Apostle John had written in his first epistle, in chapter 4, which is also a good summary of what Solomon had said here in reference to these Egyptians, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. And he that fears is not made perfect in love. Of course, John had then defined love as a keeping of the commandments of God in the very next chapter, in chapter 5 of the same epistle, where he said, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. That same word, barris, is also grievous in this passage. So now you know when your conscience is heavy what you have to do about it. And once you clear your conscience with the gospel of Christ and with repentance from sin, you won't have anything to fear even in the dark of night.
Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.